You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, we're grateful that you have brought us together on this Lord's Day. I pray that you will help us as we wrap up this series, that you will um, seal to our hearts and to our minds the truth that you have revealed yourself to us in your Son and that in that revelation is the very salvation of our souls. So bless us as we enter into this time together, I pray this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today, if, if, if I'm, my memory serves me, is, is our last day of this series. Um, and I can't... Has it been six weeks or... Th- this is the seventh week. Okay, yeah. Um, and I'll, I'm, I'm at another church next Sunday, and then the Sunday after that, I'll start a new series yet, uh, and um, and I don't know what that's going to be yet. Um, so uh, we should. We should well, I don't know about that, but I, I um, I'll have to sort of sort through what I what I what, what we'll do together. Um, but I think that'll be a three-week series after I think. Um, but anyway, information forthcoming. Um, so we're wrapping up this, and let me take a, a second to give us, um, and, and, I, and I realize these classes are often one-off. I mean, some of, some of you sort of come in and come out, and I, and I get that. Um, so l- let me just take a few minutes and give um, an aerial view quickly of where, where we started and how, and how we got here. Uh, and we started all the way back in the first week talking about the significance of God's revelation, the fact that God speaks. And if you'll remember from our conversation back then, for those of you who are here, um, I made a kind of claim there that um, when it comes to human ingenuity, intellectual activity, or even imagination, human beings don't have the wherewithal to build a proper understanding of God from our own resources. In fact, if we're left to our own resources to figure out and identify God, um, we inevitably move toward idolatry um, and self-projection. We, t- we tend to project onto God um, the, our best selves, who, who we really wish we were. Um, it's, it's, it, it, and this is it, it, it's, it's a very natural thing to do. And the, er, er, the turn of the 20th century... There was the, this was the beginning of the whole historical Jesus movement. I don't know if some of you sort of followed some of this, but you have a, a first wave, a first quest, a second quest, and then a third quest for the historical Jesus. On the front end of the first quest for the historical Jesus was a man by the name of Albert Schweitzer, um, who wrote the book, The Quest for the Historical Jesus. Um, Schweitzer was a remarkable human being, really remarkable. Um, matter of fact, for those of you who were on the Germany trip, um, several years back with the advent and we were in Weimar, you might remember us passing by this, the statue there in town of Albert Schweitzer, um, with his little, you know, sort of ha- uh, gardening hat on and some birds and children around him. And, and why, why, w- why is that statue significant? Well, because Schweitzer was a real polymath. Um, he was, he was a medical doctor. He was apparently a concert pianist. Um, he was um, a significant philanthropist, and he was a, a Bible scholar. I mean, he, 
I mean, he's, he's, he's the kind of person that I'm sure we would all go out to dinner with and become immediately self-aware of what, <laughs> you know, of what we're not. I mean, he was just, he was just remarkable. And in his, and in his, um, construction of the historical Jesus, it's kind of, I mean, it's almost humorous. Jesus becomes a philanthropist who's really talented and he's, he's kind of like Schweitzer's best self in a way. Um, we, we do this, I think, if left, left to ourselves. And the point that we made, and our first lesson was we don't have the wherewithal within our own intellectual and imaginative abilities to create a proper understanding of God that leaves us in a posture of complete receptivity and dependence on things outside of ourselves to come to a true knowledge of who God is in his own saving being. And that requires that million dollar theological word revelation. It requires God to speak. It requires for God to make the initial move toward us and to give us the resources that we need to create a proper account intellectually, theologically, and for our affections about who God actually is. And we made a distinction on that first Sunday, and it's an important one, that God's knowledge of himself and our knowledge of God are not to be equated as the same thing. And yet our knowledge of God is true and real. It's an adequate knowledge, but it's not comprehensive. Um, And I think that speaks about something of the beauty of eternity and why the beatific vision, the vision of God and his glory and his beauty is something that that we will live into for eternity as human beings. In other words, there, there will be continual discovery about the majesty and the beauty and the glory and the transcendence of God in our eternal mode of being because we don't become God when we go to heaven. We become fully human without without the imposition of sin in our relationships anymore. So that's actually very exciting. But because we're not God, we don't become an immediately omniscient. We don't know everything. We don't, we don't become all-powerful. You don't get to snap your fingers and you know there's a, as I used to imagine as a kid and there's a lollipop field that I have in the back here you know I don't think that's the case um, but we get to live into the beauty and glory of God forever um, and some of you may recall that, that that something like that happened to the to the great theologian Thomas Aquinas in, in the in the 12th I think the, the 13th century um, where Aquinas is something like six months away from finishing writing the Summa, which is one of the most important theological books in the history of the Western world. And um, he has some sort of vision, some kind of charismatic experience in the monastery and sees an exalted vision of God and his beauty. He, he, he mentions it but won't talk about it. And he puts his pen down and won't write anymore. And then he dies like six months later. It's wild. Um, because what Aquinas said was, what I just saw makes everything that I just wrote kind of, and, and this is this is the best of the theological tradition. Whether you agree with Aquinas or not, it's the best. So the, the point, the, the simple point is, God reveals. And in his revealing of himself, which is adequate and sufficient for a real and saving knowledge, he reveals himself to us in specific ways. And the way in which we have focused on in this class over the past several weeks is the fact that God gives himself to be named And to name someone is to know someone, emphasizing that the naming of God is all wrapped up in God's revelation of himself in relationship to people, in relationship to his his created world. That's significant. We're not dealing here with a deistic view of God, the blind watchmaker that sets the world and humanity according to a certain kind of natural path, and then God removes himself from that path and just observe it, observes humanity and the created world as it moves according to its own natural laws. That is not a biblical view of who God is. 
God gives himself to his people to be known. And one of the most significant ways in which God does that is in the revelation of his name. He, he, he gives himself to be named, which means he gives himself to be known. And so the name that we talked about the, the second week was the name Elohim, um, which is, is in, in some sense not really a name. Uh, at least it's not personal in, in its naming. Elohim is a general descriptor of the, of the, of what the term we would d- define as or, or spell as G-O-D, God. Um, but it can also be used for the little G-O-D-S's as well, the same term. Now, so, for example, in Jonah 1, when the sailors are on the sea and they cry out to their gods, it's the same word that you would have for Elohim, our God, in different contexts. And if you'll remember, when we talked about the name Elohim, we emphasize God's sovereignty as creator, his freedom as creator of the whole world. This removes any notion of Israel's God, the God revealed in the Old Testament, as, as a provincial deity whose, whose boundary markers are with the people of Israel and his boundary doesn't extend beyond that. Which was, by the way, a view of certain deities in the ancient and Eastern world. Nations would have their God and when they would go to battle with one another, the big kind of metaphysical question was, whose God is going to win? Now think about the Moabites. Here comes their god, Chemosh. Is he going to win today? Or is it going to be the Babylonian god, Marduk? By the way, Marduk often won more, but that's another story. Um, so who's, who's going to win out in this, in this battle? Um, the, 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 the emphasis of Elohim in the Old Testament, think Genesis 1-1, and we'll come back to that this morning. In the beginning, God created Elohim. It emphasizes that Israel's God is the God who made the heavens and the earth. He's over all. Um, and unlike the competing gods around, Israel's God doesn't enter into cosmic battle to establish his authority. His authority is properly basic to his being. He, he's not striving after something. He's not in anxiety over his lordship, as most of the gods of the ancient Near Eastern and Greco-Roman world were, in an enormous amount of anxiety about their lordship. Israel's God has no anxiety about that. He sits on his throne, unencumbered in his freedom, as the one who reveals. Now, I was we mentioned this back then, but I'll say it again. That doctrine, by the way, left to itself the freedom and the sovereignty of God, unencumbered by anything outside of himself, nothing external to his being as necessary to his being. All of those theological doctrines that we hold to be true about our God, um, if left to itself and isolated from other facets of God's being, is overwhelmingly terrifying. I think we have to be honest about that. God and his freedom and his otherness is overwhelmingly terrifying. And, and, and you'll see this. Um, we saw it today with the demoniac and, and the ways in which both the disciples and the Gentiles respond when they see Jesus doing mighty acts. They respond in fear. That's a common response. And you'll find this throughout the Old Testament as well. When people have this encounter with Elohim, the free and sovereign God who's completely other in His holiness, when they have those kind of encounters, they are seized by a kind of paralytic fear that's outside of themselves that makes them kind of immovable. Um, and, 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 and again, just you know, because we're adults in here, I think I talk about this in slightly different ways with my own kids, frankly. But when we hear things like in the Bible, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, I think we'll, we'll neuter that sometimes um, in an effort to not make the force of it sit on us. 
Um, and how do we neuter it? We'll say things like, well, fear, it really does, it doesn't mean what you think it means. It really means sort of reverential awe, or say something like that. And that's true. But it's a reverential awe that's the product of knee knocking fear. I mean, I think that's, that's what we, we don't, we don't want to neuter that. Um, because God, God in His holiness and otherness is, I mean, think about Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. What, what was his response? He was immediately self-aware. I do not, I should not be in your presence. And the fact that I, as a man of unclean lips, am in your presence, my existence today will come to an end. That's what Isaiah thought. That's the natural course of events here. I'm seeing God in His unfettered holiness and otherness. My life is over. I can no longer be. Um, and this is where... If I, and, I, I, and I've been thinking about this this week because it, I've been reading some of um, one of my favorite theologians again, and he emphasizes this, and I wanted to pass it on. But we have to recognize that these various attributes that we use to describe God, um, and they're important. I think they're true. Um, God's omniscience, He's all-knowing. The, that's scary to think about the fact that God knows everything. He knows everything you do. I mean, you think about like Santa Claus, but with God's like... Um, I mean, he's he's all knowing. That that's that's horrifying. He's all powerful. Um, you know, so all these omni terms that we use to describe God, um, these are all features of God's being. But we also recognize that God is love. He is compassionate. He's kind. He's patient with sinners. He's not quick to fly off the handle. He's he's gracious. He's merciful. So that when you think about and we tend to think of these things in in in, um, in, in terms of tension, right? I mean, I don't, and I don't know how else we do it because again, we're thinking with the frailty and the limitations of our own human minds. We have to taxonomize these things. We have to put them in some kind of order. So we'll say, well, these these are the this theological talk. These are the incommunicable attributes of God. They cannot be communicated to humanity. He's holy. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. But we also recognize that God is gracious and kind and quick to forgive. And we tend to think of these on some sort of graded scale. But God, and this is so important, God is singular in His being. He's not composed of parts. Um, he, he doesn't have to think, and now I'm going to operate according to my nice side. Um, and now I'm going to operate according to my holy side. He is all of those things at once in the singularity of His being, and none of them play over against one another in any way. That, that's why when you think about God as holy, we say He's holy and He's gracious. Think about God's wisdom. I mean, God's wisdom is another one of those terrifying features. The wisdom of God displayed in His power and His knowledge, which is infinite and stretched. God's wisdom is terrifying, but God is wise and He's patient. And I think the tendency for us, even pastorally and personally in our own sort of spiritual lives, are to maybe wait, go to one side or the other, right? And I think where the Bible wants to leave us is in this place of recognizing that God is those things, all of them, in the singularity of His being. If He were only wise and not patient, we would not be. If He was only all-powerful and not gracious and, and, and patient, then our existence would be significantly under threat. Now, but because He is all those things at once, that gives a kind of explanation on some level, limited as it is, as to why the world even is and why you and I are here today. I mean, we're here today because God is wise and He's patient. 
because God is holy and he's gracious. And he, he is those things fully and completely in the singularity of his being and in his actions toward the world. God's being is in accord with his actions. Ours, by the way, is not. We don't operate that way. Our being and our actions are not always in accord with one another, right? But God's existence and his actions are one. And that's why he always operates according to the character of his being as the one who is, again, wise and patient, holy and gracious. Okay? So we, we talked about that the first week. And then the second, third, third week, or third and fourth week, wherever now, um, we talked about um, the Tetragrammaton, of which I'm going to come back to that this morning quickly. Um, the name that God reveals to himself and his people in personal self-giving. So when, when we get to the New Testament and we see all this name theology, which I want to talk about that a little bit this morning, but all this name theology in the New Testament, um, think uh, John chapter 17, the night before Jesus goes into the Passion, and the next day in John chapter 18, he's with his disciples in the upper room, and what does Jesus say? I have revealed to them your name, and I will yet reveal it to them even more. When you hear language like that in the Bible, that should cause us some pause to recognize that knowledge of the name is not, in the sense of knowing that it exists, is not enough. Um, And and today, Luke 8 is a great example of that. And and this, did did we talk about this last week? I'm I'm off script, but whatever. Um, my, my son, and I don't, please don't take offense at this, okay? Uh, I, I, I don't know where all of you are theologically, and I, I have a deep sort of ecumenical side of my own spirit. I teach at Beeson. We're all loosey-goosey about that stuff at Beeson. Um, so don't take this offensively. But my son is, is a student now at a Roman Catholic high school in town, um, uh, uh, the big one on Lakeshore that will go unnamed. Um, <laughs> and so he's going there, and, and just this week, where he's studying for a theology exam that he has the next day. And frankly, he's, he's, a, he's a little bit at a disadvantage because a lot of these kids have gone through all these Catholic feeder schools, and this is all very new to him and to us. You know, so we're having the, where he's in bed and he's go, we had a little come to Jesus meeting after his first quarter grades came out. So now we're like, we're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna study more. Um, and he was in his bed preparing for his theology exam. I was, I was in kind of in the bed with another kid goofing around and I said, all right, well, fire, fire out some of these questions. So he starts to work through some of the theology questions and he begins to, to talk about the nature of faith. And this, this of course is a big, Bugger bear for Reformation theology. What's the nature and the character of faith? And there was a medieval notion that's still very present within Roman Catholic theology that faith is intellectual assent. It's the knowledge of. Um, but faith couldn't... And think about Reformation theology. We are saved by faith. Think sola fide, by faith. And the big bugger boo there is what? Alone. That's the word. It's, it's, it's the alone part. Um, and of course, from you know a, a certain area of Roman Catholic theology, it can't be alone, because faith is just intellectual assent. Faith has to work itself out in actions and deeds of love for it to be saving faith. So faith has to be wed to love for faith to be saving, because faith of itself is merely intellectual assent. And here you have uh, the reformers who come along and say, no, faith is not near, merely. And here's here are the Latin terms: assensus, intellectual assent. But also fiducia, trustworthiness, in the sense that not only do I know that it's true, 
but I'm placing all of my trustworthiness and confidence on it to be true for me. That's why you can say something like we're saved by justification, by faith alone. The alone part there is not just a mere intellectual assent because guess what? The demons get it, right? I mean, they knew who he was. Intellectual assent, knowledge of the name, not enough. But a recognition that that name is true and I put all of my trust and confidence, my saving health in the confidence of that name, that's where salvation comes, right? So the, the conjoining of ascensus and fiducia, intellectual assent and confidence in the trustworthiness of what God has said and done in Jesus. And, I'm, and I stake everything on it. And that's part of the dynamic of the revealed name in the Bible. Knowledge of the name itself is not enough. And think about it even from the standpoint of something like ex, uh, the verse Exodus 6-2. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they knew me as El El Yon. But you know me now as Tetragrammaton, yod Hey vav Hey Jehovah. And what's the significance of that? Did Abraham not know those four letters, yod Hey vav Hey Jehovah? Most certainly he did. Just turn to Genesis 18. He has a conversation with yod Hey vav Hey. He has a conversation with, with the Lord. Um, so why does Exodus 6-2 exist? Because God wants Moses to know that his name is uniquely revealed in its character in this moment in time. In the saving event that you are about to experience, my name is all wrapped up in my redeeming purposes with my people. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as important as they are in the, in the redemptive story, they're not here at the Exodus. They're with their fathers in the grave already. But you, Moses, and the people of Israel, you now will understand the significance of this name in unique and powerful ways. And when we move to the New Testament and we see Jesus saying, I've revealed to you the name, but I will yet reveal to you it even more. What you're seeing is the great balance of the Old and the New Testament redemptively. Because in the Old Testament, the Exodus is the defining redemptive moment of Israel's history. And in the New Testament, it's obviously cross and resurrection. So here you see the name of God as revealed in Jesus all wrapped up in God's redeeming purposes with His people. To know the name in an intellectual way is not enough. But to know the name in a saving and redeeming way, I think that's the emphasis of the theology of the name in the Bible, is to come into contact with the name as the, as the person is really meant to be understood and known. Okay, so we did that. Then we, the fourth week, we talked about El Shaddai and El Elyon, and did we? I think we did Jehovah Jireh and Jehovah Roy. We did some of those names on week whatever that was. Um, last week we did the name Jesus, which is significant because again, Jesus' name is revealing something about the character of His person and His mission. What does Jesus mean? It's it's, it's not it's not a special name in the sense of I mean there were probably other Yeshuas around. Uh, in the time of Jesus. It's, it's the name Joshua in the Old Testament. And what it means is deliverance. And that was the annunciation from the angel to Joseph. And you shall name his name Jesus. Why? Because nomen is omen, right? The name reveals something about the character. Jesus is going to, reve- is going to redeem and deliver his people from their sin. So we, we did all that. Today, I want to kind of wrap it up um, and talk about the significance of naming God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, which is the name that we, in, the, in, in Christian theology and in our liturgical settings through the history of the church, God has given Himself to be named and understood in this way. 
So the question that's before us as we think about Old Testament and New Testament is, what is the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and the uniqueness of the divine name in the Old Testament, Yahweh, Jehovah, yod Hey vav Hey. Right? So, just for clarity's sake. So here you have, in the Old Testament, then we have in the New Testament the significance of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, um, and I want to I want to talk some about the significance of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, revealing the missional character of God's identity. Our God, our God is not just a sending God. Our God is a missionary God. I mean, this 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 is embedded within God's own eternal decision to be a God for creation and for humanity. Um, He sends Himself. Um, And think about even the language in the Gospel of John, where you have Jesus saying, "I'm going to farewell discourse. I'm going to have to leave." Um, But once I leave, this is actually really good news for you. It sounds completely silly. You know, like that can't be good news that you bodily are not going to be in our midst anymore. How's that good news? Because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes, John 16, this is kind of a blow your hair back moment. Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes, you'll do greater works than these. Which I think indicates something about the expansion of the gospel message of Jesus Christ throughout the whole world. I mean, what you saw in this demoniac scene in Luke chapter 8 is about as far away as Jesus ever went. I mean, Jesus' ministry was localized to a very small uh, geographical location. But once Jesus ascends to the Father's side and the, and the Spirit is sent as the sending agent to bring the presence and the message of Jesus to the world, all of a sudden now you see believers in mass beginning to spread the gospel message throughout the whole known world. It's, it's, a, it's a remarkable achievement of God's own missionary activity. And if you think about the end of Matthew's Gospel, right? What do you have at the end of Matthew's Gospel? The Great Commission, right? Go ye, therefore, into all the world and preach the Gospel. And what's, what's the content of the, of, the, of the Gospel message? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the, the, the triune character of God's being is wrapped up in the missional character of God's people and God's church because, and this is really crucial, because God is a missionary being Himself. He sends um, his son. He sends the spirit as the as the adjudicator and as the as the presenter of God's presence for his people. Um, so that, that's but that, that that's not the question. The question is, how do we understand the relationship between um, the naming of God in the Old Testament as Jehovah and the naming um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? This is a live debate. Okay, so, and unfortunately, you just have me this morning. Other people would give you a different account, and I want you to be aware of that. Um, there are those, especially in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, that would identify Jehovah, Yahweh, in the Old Testament as the Father alone. Um, in fact, one of my favorite Old Testament scholars in the world, Brevard Childs, he would identify in various places um, Jehovah, Yahweh, as, as the Father. Um, there's a newish book that's come out by a man named Kendall Sullen, who teaches down at Emory, who's made an argument that no, Tetragrammaton, the four letters there, are best predicated on the name Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the, the Trinity in, its, in the totality of the three persons, that's the best way. 
And my, my view is a kind of middle view that I, I really, I take my cues from Aquinas. So I'll admit this, this is not novel. No, but my view is a kind of middle way um, to understand that the tetragrammaton there, the four letters, is best understood as the essence of what God's godness is in the singularity of his being. So whatever you think about God and his essence, so, so can I talk about it in Nicene terms? We didn't do Nicene Creed today, did we? Did. Sure. That's the Hebrew one. Uh, Y-H-W-H. Yod, hey, uh, Vav, hey. To help. Um, and the reason why we say Jehovah, where that term comes from, is we take the vowels of the name Adonai, um, which in, if you've been in a synagogue setting and you've heard uh, the Torah read publicly, have any of you been in that setting where you've, you've heard it read publicly? Whenever they come to this name right here, they'll never pronounce it. They'll replace it with the term Adonai. Um, so you go along and say, da-da-da-da-da-da. You see this Adonai, da-da-da-da-da-da, out of respect for the divine name. And so the term Jehovah that we use in, in Christian tradition is the taking of the letters from, sorry, the vowels from Adonai, I-O-I, and put it, putting them on this here, and that's why the Yod is often a J, Jehovah. And that's how, that's how you get that term. Um, the, the point is Jehovah doesn't mean anything. There, there, there's no, that, that's a, that's a construct. Um, that, that has been put together by the English-speaking theological tradition. But I'll just go and tell you, all the names are a construct for that. We, we don't know how the yod hey vav hey was is properly pronounced. Um, and in fact, in certain, in certain Jewish traditions, the more mystical traditions, those, those three letters are viewed as magical letters. There's a kind of, there's a mysticism that's attached, especially to the hey. Um, it gets the, the, the huh part of it. Um, but that's, 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 but the, so my, my view on the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a kind of middle view to recognize that Yahweh can refer to the singularity of God's being, God, and it can be equally predicated on any member of the Trinity. The Father is Yahweh. The Son is Yahweh. The Holy Spirit is Yahweh. Depending on the, depending on the moment and the activity that's being revealed. So the name of God, um, is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And who is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are Yahweh. They are Jehovah. Well, is the Father Jehovah? Yes. And is the Son Jehovah? Yes. And is the Spirit Jehovah? Yes. Because in Nicene language, think about the Nicene Creed that we did last week, not this week, but the Nicene Creed, how do we describe Jesus? God of God, light of light, of one substance with the Father. That substance language that we're using here is what Aquinas would say is all generated by the tetragrammaton, those four letters. That is the essence of God's being. And the Son is the substance of the Father. And the Father is the same substance as the Son. That's Trinitarian logic. And I know if you think about it long enough, your brain starts to ooze out your ear. I get it. Now, this is, this is an article of faith, but it's an article of faith that's all wrapped up, and this is really important, in the language of what, how God has instructed us to name Him. So this is this is why I can get a little bit buggy personally about wanting to start fiddling with how we name God in public liturgical settings, because this this is not the constructs that we have here of our own best cultural ideas. 
The naming of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit emerges from God's own self-giving in the Bible and pressures us to name Him in this way. In other words, it's not up to us how we get to name God. It's up to God how He gets to be named. I think that's that's crucial. Okay? Um, i got to stop. Um, I wanted to talk about Genesis 1, 1 to 4 and just emphasize for you that this Trinitarian character of God's being, we can't even get out of the first four verses of the Old Testament without seeing it. Now, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Spirit of God hovers over the face of the deep. And then the next verse, verse 4 says, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. So what you have in the first three, four verses of the Bible is God the Father in His creating activity working with the Spirit by the sending agency of His Word. And, if, and one of the fun things that I like to show my students at Beeson when we're reading through the prophets in Hebrew is how often Hebrew, Hebrew um, prophetic books begin this way. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And the word of the Lord came to Amos. You have this coming sense of the word of the Lord as both God's very being, but also as a sent agent that's distinct from the one that sent it. And the point is, this Trinitarian dynamic of God's being as singular and yet distinct in person is all wrapped up in the way in which the Old Testament already talks about God's being. Um, Lightning flashes that we might see along the way that in time become clear in the uniqueness of the Incarnation when Jesus steps into the world. All of this has to do with God's identity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as a missionary agent. I did want to leave that with you this morning. It's remarkable to think, again, that God, nothing is necessary to His being outside of Himself. Nothing. And yet, in the own eternal counsel of His own internal conversation, and we're speaking as fools here, all right? We're talking using human language and analogy to think about the the intercommunication of God. So, recognize the limits here. But in God's own self-communication and self-determination and an eternal communion of love, there is an eternal pact of redemption in God's own being to say, we will extend ourselves for the world to be and to redeem fallen humanity within that world. It's, it's the missionary agency of God is not just a part of something that He does in time. It's constitutive of His eternal identity. Um, that's, not, that's not a new thing for God, but for God to be a missionary agent is integral to His eternal identity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay? Does anybody want to ask one question? <laughs> what you said about the the naming of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit—it really nailed down in the Athanasian Creed about how it details. Yes. Each is the each is unto itself the same, but they are one. That's right. And if you struggle through the Athanasian Creed, uh, which is wordy at least, yes, you'll see that. Yeah, and that's in our prayer books, I think. Yeah, it's worth worth looking at. Yeah. Why does the Orthodox Church look at it as Father and Son, and why do they do that? Oh, you're pressing me probably beyond the limits of my knowledge here. I, I don't, I, I, I mean, the Orthodox Church is definitely Trinitarian. Um, I thought they had a break with the Catholic Church. Oh, okay, no, no. That's a break over the cause, the clause called the Filioque Clause. Um, so when we say the Nicene Creed and we say something like, um, who proceeded, this is talking about the Holy Spirit, and we believe in the Holy Spirit who proceeded from the Father and the Son, that and the sun part became really controversial in the 12th century. That's what they call the Great Schism. Because in the Eastern Church, they only say, who proceeds from the Father. 
and, and the Western tradition has added and the sun. There's a lot of stuff that's really misunderstood on this, and I'm still trying to get my own mind around it. But that is in no way a kind of diminution of a Trinitarian logic within the Eastern Church. The, I would think the greatest Trinitarian minds of the 4th century are the Eastern theologians. Uh, Gregory of Nazianzus, Basil the Great, um, Gregory of Nyssa. I mean, these are the great minds of Trinitarian orthodoxy that are real. I mean, if you go to, is it Holy Cross downtown? Right by the Falafel Cafe. I don't know how I know that. But, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but the, right there... The, if you go in, if my memory serves me, they've got up in the in the chancel area there um, iconographic representations of those great three theologians: Gregory the Great, Gregory of Nyssa, and, and Basil the Great. So they they are robustly Trinitarian, um, but within the Eastern tradition, they do tend to emphasize what they call the monarchy of the Father. Um, so the monarchy of the Father as sort of as as playing a significantly more central role in the sending of both the Son and the Spirit. Um, is something that's pretty central, I think, to, to um, Eastern thought, um, and that that's where some of the division comes. A very and this this does this is what I'm about to say is wrong, but what you'll often hear is a kind of simplistic exposition like this: the Eastern Church tends to emphasize the three, the Western Church tends to emphasize the singularity of the one. Um, that's not true, by the way, but I think it at least helps understand what some of the and, and in that threeness in the Eastern Church. It's an emphasis on the monarchy of the Father. And you'll see that, by the way, in all the icons. It's the Father there, and then you have the, the dove and the, and the sun coming. So the, the centrality of the Father is present. Yes, sir? 412, Acts 412. Just the idea of salvation is found in no one else. Yeah. No, no other, other name. That's right. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, I think this is where the New Testament is, is radically provocative. And, and that's why it won't allow us a sort of neutral stand on, on Trinitarian logic. I mean, to say that the doctrine of the Trinity um, is the doctrine by which all others are understood is not an overstatement. It's, it's not, you know, the, the doctrine of the Trinity is not one among a sort of whole class of equal doctrines. It's, it's, the, it's the standard, it's the groundwork for everything that we say. And what the New Testament is forcing on us is that we cannot name God. And think about the significance of that in the Old Testament. The naming of God all wrapped up in tetragrammaton, Yahweh. We cannot name God anymore without understanding that name as having to entail the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. So this name, Philippians chapter 2, he handed over to him the name that's above every name. What name is that? That name. So that the identity of Yahweh, Jehovah, is all wrapped up in the self-same identity of Jesus and the Spirit. That's the Trinitarian logic that's so radical. And, and here's some homework for you. Go read 1 Corinthians 8.6. Paul reshuffles the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. Think about the, the, the central claim of Israel's understanding of the singularity of their God. Paul, Paul reshuffles that to talk about the Father and the Son in that. Um, that's an intentional move that Paul is making. So this name stuff about the name of Jesus being wrapped up in the name of Tetragrammaton tells us that the extension of Yahweh is best understood now in the revelation of the name of God in, in Jesus of Nazareth. And that's the, 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 the implications of that are huge. It goes back to Hebrews then too. Yes, yeah. In these days he has spoken to us in the Son. Which again, that article there just speaks to the, the importance and the singularity of this moment. Um, I thought, I thought about this this week, um, for a, another sermon that I had to prepare for. Um, and that's, and it's, um, we tend to think in terms of historical progression, 
right? Um, one thing sort of leads to another in time. Um, and there's, there's space for that to think about the, what we call redemptive history. But I think we run into significant danger if we think about Jesus as a stage along the way of redemptive history. Even if we frame that in the terms of the final stage. So even if we give it like the final... Jesus is not understood as, at least by Paul, I don't think, as a stage along the way, even the final stage. The revelation of God in Jesus is the means by now which all of history is to be understood. That which comes before and that which comes after. So it's not just sort of a stage that we move to, but we recognize now in this moment in time, in the fullness of time, we now understand the mysteries of God and his ways with the world, past, present, and future. It's not just stage along the way. It's, to use technical terms, it's the metaphysic for everything. And that's all wrapped up in this Hebrews and Acts 4 stuff. Lord, let us go in your way in grace. And uh, thank you for giving us your son. And Lord, thank you for these great gifts that you've given to the church, these theologians of the past who have wrestled with really one big thing, trying to come to terms with how you revealed yourself in the Bible. And uh, give us that kind of hunger and love uh, for your word, I praise. Not, not, Lord, just so that we can kind of scratch intellectual interests, but because we want to worship you in the beauty of your holiness. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.